0: So Money episode ten fifty five. Black wealth matters with Stephanie Vaughn, founder of Social Money Finance. You're listening to So Money with award winning money guru Farnoosh Torabi. Each day, get a thirty minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money.
1: Black people are disproportionately dying from this illness, But in addition to that, we are still suffering at the hands of racism. There's still wealth disparities. There's still poverty going on in the Black communities. It is really just a revolutionary time in history. And I think people from everywhere are beginning to pay more attention.
0: Welcome back to So Money, everybody. I'm your host, Furnish Tarabi. In our latest installment in our Black Wealth Matters series, we have Stephanie Vaught joining. She is an attorney and Generation X financial coach and founder of Social Money Finance. Stephanie was born and raised in Detroit and has spent most of her professional career in law and community advocacy and now she's turning her focus to personal finance to empower people to increase their financial literacy challenge unproductive money habits and improve their financial place for themselves and their families with Stephanie's background in law and community planning had many questions for her related to the current events the protests the marches how impactful does she find them why are Are we now suddenly all more interested in racial justice? And a little history lesson on Detroit. Stephanie was born and raised in Motor City and offers some insights on some of the progress the city has made given its storied historical background. Here's Stephanie Vought. Stephanie Vought, welcome to So Money. How are you? I am wonderful. Thank you so much, Varnoosh, for having me. Absolutely. I, I wanted to have you on because you are doing so much impactful work as the creator of Social Money Finance based in Detroit, Michigan, helping particularly Gen X women, mostly Black women master their money. And so I want to learn more from you about how you're teaching them. But your background, Stephanie, is in law and community organizing. So my first question for you is, as you see everything that's going on with the marches and the protests, from your perspective, what has been the most encouraging aspect to all of this? And, and what may be some signs, signals that this is, in fact, contributing to eradicating systemic racism, that we are making progress? What's different about it this time?
1: Yeah, you know, this is an excellent question, Farnooshin. And and again, thank you so much for having me on the show. This is a great time and opportunity to really talk about these issues as it relates to wealth and money, but also as it relates to what I call a revolution happening. And it's interesting because we're in the year 2020. And I think most people can say this year did not start out or continue as any of us would have predicted. You know, we make these plans, we make these goals, and, you know, we set aside these these visioning and vision boards and things like that that we want to achieve in a year. And 2020 was so significant for so many people. But of course, now we're living in a pandemic that's still happening. Um, and now with a lot of the police brutality and deaths and things like that, that are occurring disproportionately with Black people, you know, You're starting to see what that has resulted in. And the question I've gotten, you know, many, many times is why now? You know, why are people now paying this sort of very laser focused attention to the black community? And my response to that is it's a culmination of things. It is where we are in this time. So, as I mentioned, the pandemic, right? It has impacted every single person um, on the planet, <laughs> whether they have been sick or know someone who's gotten sick or they're just aware of what's going on. So, that right there has caused the world to stop and pay attention. And Black people in particular are dealing with something at a much larger rate than the pandemic, right? So, of course, we've heard the numbers that Black people are, you know, disproportionately proportionately dying from this illness. But in addition to that, we are still suffering at the hands of racism. There's still wealth disparities. There's still poverty going on in the Black community. So when you've got a pandemic that everyone knows about, but in addition to that, you have you know the, the sickness and the deaths and the poverty and wealth gaps happening disproportionately more to Black people along with a pandemic. It is It is really just a revolutionary time in history. And I think people from everywhere are beginning to pay more attention um, to this particular group of of people than ever before. And so that has been what I've observed in living in Detroit, growing up in Detroit. I've seen, and as you mentioned, Farnoosh, um, I come from a legal and community advocacy background. And so I have certainly been on the ground with protests and you know people fighting for equality and equity. So I am very familiar with that. Um, but what's different about this time is, for one, you've got a lot of young people involved, which is very encouraging um, from teenagers and people are bringing their children and getting them involved in a very productive way. Right. It's not just about You know, some people sort of look down on marching, but it's not just about that. It's really using your voice and then using action behind your words, too. So that, you know, has something to do with where we're spending our money. I think that is another part of the focus that has come, you know, in parallel with the protest is being very intentional about where you're spending money and supporting black-owned businesses and people of color and women-owned businesses that have always been in Detroit, right? And it's now putting the the focus on these businesses that perhaps, you know, maybe didn't get the attention that they deserved before. And so now that focus is there and really encouraging people in and around the city to be very conscious about how they can use their economic dollars to empower themselves, empower their community, and realize the power within them that it is far reaching. So those are the things that I'm noticing Um, in and around Detroit that I'm very encouraged by, very inspired by. And I love seeing the energy and I love seeing the young people getting involved and people just really understanding where our power is and what we can actually do with it.
0: You're absolutely right about the faces of this protest. This time, it's not just a majority black people marching in the streets. It's people from all races, all walks of life. As a lawyer, Stephanie, I'm curious to know what you think, what are some either new laws that need to be implemented or laws that need to be changed, erased, so that we can create a better structure so that financial advice and financial services can really make an impact on people's lives, particularly black people's lives. Excellent question. So um, it's interesting that, you know, you
1: have brought this up. This is something I talk about within my financial company, within my financial coaching and having the legal background. Of course, it's not something I can turn off. And it's and it's something that I educate people on all the time. Farnoosh, the laws are in place. It is about calling these financial institutions to task about implementing the laws fairly And equitably. So one of the things that I talk about very often is, for example, the Fair Credit Reporting Act. I talk about that as well as the Fair Credit Billing Act. So starting with the Fair Credit Reporting Act that was established in 1970. And it's where you're you're providing accuracy and fairness in how Um, one's personal information is contained, what's being reported to credit reporting agencies, and what people in general have the right to know. And the reason why I bring that one up is because oftentimes, you know, the credit report, for example, carries a lot of weight in terms of credibility, right? So if someone is attempting to get a loan or a credit card or even a business loan, if they're wanting to establish themselves as credit worthy. A lot of times that credit report is what institutions use to tell the story. However, if information is not being reported accurately, then you have to put the onus, right, on the consumer to figure out what's, you know, reporting wrong and then what to do about it. And so even though I educate the consumer on here are some things that you can do to correct um, things that are reporting inaccurately on your credit report. It is also the responsibility of the institution that reports to ensure that it's reported correctly. So that's something that, you know, I make sure that I educate those that I come in contact with, that you have rights here as a consumer and your rights are very powerful. And so the laws are in place. It's just about calling to task the institutions that are utilizing them because a lot of times people just don't know what's available and what's there for them. And the other one I mentioned is the fair credit billing. And that's the same thing. It's about making sure that mistakes are corrected efficiently. So if there is something um, wrong, you know, on the credit report, for example, this is what we're, you know, we're talking about is making sure that if and and, and if it's reported inaccurately, okay. But making sure that once it's brought to that person's attention and 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 it's a valid or a credible, um, you know, mistake on their part, that to make sure that that information is taken off the credit report quickly and efficiently, so that it doesn't have those disparate impacts on um, people trying to get you know, lines of credit, and it doesn't impact their credit worthiness. The last piece to that, Farnoosh, is that the reason that's so important, and like I said, I'm just using credit as an example, but the reason that is so important is because specifically in communities of color, a lot of times your credit is not just for um, the credit card or for getting a loan, right? A lot of times it is used when you are attempting to get auto insurance. And if your credit score, right, is not of a certain number, that could impact the premiums and your rate of premium when getting your your auto insurance. It can also be used when you're attempting to apply for a job within the financial realm. Some jobs look at your, you know, your credit report to determine credit worthiness. And in other instances, um, you know, whether you're trying to uh, get property or if you're trying to rent, a lot of your times your credit report is used. So there's many, many ways in which something like that can really impact a person that is attempting to build or establish credit. And if their information is not reported accurately or they're not being um, told everything, if they're not informed, that kind of thing can have a a huge impact on what they're attempting to do. So I I educate on that all the time. And
0: let's remember leveraging credit to invest in a business, your business, to invest in property. These are the strategies that we've been told Can help to build wealth. And so, when it comes to this idea of building wealth within the Black community, maybe you can just speak from your own experience here. What were those conversations like? I've heard from a number of Black individuals who've been on this podcast during this series and before that there wasn't really a conversation about investing as much as maybe how to make money or building wealth versus earning a paycheck. And I just wonder what was your experience and how do you hope that the narrative will change? Right, right, right. It's so true. Um, So from a personal perspective,
1: right, I grew up in a household where we were working slash middle class and um, my mother was the primary breadwinner. And one of the things that she taught my sister and I, so it was, it was a three women home. (laughs) And um, what she taught us was one of her sort of um, isms, if you will, was to have more than one source of income. This was something that she used to say all the time. And she said that because, you know, her position was, you know, if, if something happened with that your main job, for example, then you've got something else to fall back on. And growing up, my mother had more than one source of income all the time, all the, the the while that I can remember. She had a main nine to five position and then she taught on the side. She's an educator. So she taught community college on the side, whether it was a couple of classes or whatever it was, but she did that Um, And and honestly, I think a lot of it was out of necessity because um, we did live in well, we were uh, in a divorced parent home. So my mother raised us, but I think she did a lot of it out of necessity. But in doing so, realizing the value of being able to have a plan B or a fallback. So that was something that she you know, taught us from a very early age. In addition to that, and on the other side, which I think is interesting, is even though we were taught that very young, we weren't really taught how to manage what we got. And I think that is something that um, a lot of people can say. So when I got in the personal finance industry approximately five years ago, coming out of the legal industry, right? And I got in it because I was so fascinated. I wanted to learn about money and I wanted to learn how to not just make money, but how to manage the money that I made. Um, I think a lot of Focus was on making a lot of money, right? Make a lot of money, make a lot of money, which is important. You know, it is important to have um, money and it opens doors and it provides options and access, right? We're not disputing that. But it is in managing what you have. And that's something that. I can't say that I fully knew how to do, even as an attorney. And one thing I used to sort of kid with myself is, you know, I've gotten all this schooling, and I've done all this work. But the the life skill that I didn't necessarily get, you know, in school or growing up was how to effectively manage money. And so I taught myself how to do that starting in 2009. And I became so interested and so fascinated with, all the aspects of money in managing it and building wealth and what it can do for you that um, when an opportunity became available in 2015 for me to kind of merge into the personal finance space. I took it because I was educating myself, but I also wanted to educate others. And I got certified in financial coaching and counseling, and I, I trained and I learned. And I, you know, I had an opportunity to speak with thousands of people um, across the country in this five years time span. And one of the things that is really interesting is that you know, people within my peer group, so Gen Xers. We tend to share this similar story, right? In that, you know, maybe our parents talked to us about money, or maybe the messaging was around getting money and, and making a lot of money and getting the degrees and going to school. And there was sort of this um, prescriptive form of success, right? But a lot of us did not learn once you get the money, what do you do with the money? You know, how do you manage it? And then in managing it, that's where I believe the wealth can be built. You know, if you haven't really um, ascertained what your mindset is around money, or what your behaviors are around money, or what your day to day, you know, daily habits are with money. If you don't really know what that is, right, you can't really manage or you can't really address what you don't know. So if you don't know that, then you, if your focus is just on attaining money, but your habits are essentially sabotaging, right, what you've attained, then you don't get to the place of wealth. And that's something that I talk with my clients with all the time is that a lot of our focus is on attaining and then on consuming. You know, we are a society of of overconsumption. Right. So it's it's having all the things and having all the things doesn't necessarily lead to wealth either. So it's really understanding. And (laughs) something I say all the time is finding the value in the mundane. Right. So understanding what your Daily habits are what are your behaviors around money and once you really identify what that is, if it needs to be adjusted, then that's where the financial literacy and the knowledge comes in on how do I make these adjustments so that I can attain the wealth that I'm looking for or the wealth that I'm seeking right um, and so that is that's what I tend to focus on when I'm talking to my clients about effective money management is it's not attaining the wealth or having a certain level of income. It's just one piece. It's just one part of the story. But managing what you've gotten and knowing how to build and grow that, that's the other piece of the story. And so you can't skip that. Sometimes you want to skip that part and just get to the money, which I totally understand. But it is important to know you know, what kinds of things you need to do to get to the money.
0: And to anchor it as, hey, this is an opportunity for you to leave a financial legacy, to have your wealth outlast you, to give back. And, And so how do you frame it to your clients so that they don't just get the how, but also the why? Yeah. So a lot of times what I typically
1: start the conversation with is what matters to you, right? Because personal finance is personal. It, it depends on what is important to the individual that you're speaking with. So we generally start with what are your highest values? What matters? What are some things that you want in place? So if you left here tomorrow, that you would feel essentially comfortable with leaving a certain legacy, as we hear often, or um, a certain future to your children or to your spouse or to your community? What matters? And I start with that question because I think it's important for the person to be able to articulate what is important to them, because it might be something different for everyone. So the common answers or the answers I've heard often are generally their children, right? They want their children to have, you know, a certain level of wealth that they didn't have. So for example, you know, in the black community or people of color community, now and let me speak specifically about black community. This is what I've learned and certainly heard over the years from my clients is wanting to leave their children with money Um, in a sense that they didn't have, they don't have to struggle like we did per se, right? So it's a lot of times when you hear about trust funds, that's not a a term that's often used in the black community, not often, right? Usually if you hear the term trust fund or you hear um, something that pertains to um, a child being able to tap into resources or money at the age of 21 or 25, or just later in life, It's not in the form of a trust fund. We don't that term is not something that we are that familiar with. But if we've heard of it, we generally associate it with someone that is not a person of color. Right. So you might even hear it sort of like, you know, I'm not a trust fund baby or I don't have a trust fund set aside. And something that I tell my clients is all of these products like a trust fund or life insurance or investments and things like that, they're available to everyone, right? There's, there's, no, there's no group of people that has access to it um, theoretically. It might feel that way because maybe it's talked about in different groups or communities, but these sorts of products are available to everyone. It is just about having the knowledge and understanding on how to access So getting familiar, and that's why I focus so much on the knowledge piece and really opening up the mind to what's out there and what's possible. So getting familiar with this type of terminology and what financial products are there to build wealth is so important. And it's not just you know left to your 401k, for example, that if you, you're working in a traditional job and you have a 401k and you sort of kind of blindly you know, have money set aside where it's going in there and maybe your employer matches that amount, right? So if you have 5% coming out of your paycheck and your employer matches that, which is awesome, that's an awesome tool. But what I've found too, is that a lot of times it's sort of at a set it and forget it mode, right? We, we have the money automatically coming out of our paycheck, but we don't know where that money's going. We don't know how it's being distributed. We're, we're not necessarily, um, you know, up on the, the nuances of the 401k and what sort of investment vehicle that it's, that it's in and what sort of, um, you know, what, what we're doing with it. It's kind of like, well, I got a 401k and it's just kind of left there. And when you dig a little bit deeper and you ask those questions, that's where it's like, this is the kind of thing that we you know, as a community would need to get further and further involved in and in saying, you know, this is available to us and it is it is imperative that we know and understand what we're doing and what kinds of products are out there. So those are the kinds of conversations that I have a lot with my clients on wealth builders and how you go about doing it and just hearing from them, you know, what is important to you. So as I mentioned, children is One example, wanting to make sure their children have more right than what they had or access to more than what they had and knowing what those products are. A lot of times, obviously, it would be the, you know, the individual's own retirement, not wanting to work into well into their golden years. Right. Like 70s and things like that, just wanting to have a solid retirement in place. Um, And some can be even in a sense of wanting to ensure that their family is taken care of so if something happens to them right is having life insurance in place or um you know a burial plan so if that person passes or if an illness happens that their family is not stuck or worried about money at such a a, gr- a time of grief right because that happens often in many communities where You know, a person passes away and they don't have a a life insurance or they don't have a will or they don't have something that sort of leaves direction to their family and certainly leaves financial support to their family. Um, Or if they have it, maybe it's not at the level they want it to be. So it's really talking about those types of things to get people Understanding what's available to them, but letting them articulate, hey, what is what matters to you? And when they articulate it, that's how you as the expert or, or certainly myself as the expert comes in and says, this is what's available.
0: From my perspective, I've covered a lot of financial programs, a lot of financial products and services. And I'll go so far as to say that I think there are some products and services that not just undermine communities of color, in particular Black communities, but almost like they're taking advantage of these communities and their lack of literacy, perpetuating these myths like banks don't want to work with you, so work with us. Or you can't open up a bank account, nobody will let you. And so rather than teaching you how to save, invest, there are tools like prepaid cards that charge you these high fees and that I think spread a lot of lies about what someone is capable of doing in their financial life. And I've gone to battle with some of these products. You can Google it online. For example, I've written about the Rush card. I interviewed Russell Simmons almost 10 years ago about this, and I just didn't like it. It really rubbed me the wrong way. I felt like it was targeting Black communities in such a way that wasn't, in the long run, helpful to them. I can see where a Mm -hmm. prepaid card in the short run can help you pay your bills, uh, but how does that give you any literacy? How does that help you save in an account that's earning interest, or invest, or you know what I mean, it just was—it had so many limits. What is going on? Is it just straight up racism, and or is it you know profiting off a community that generally doesn't have as much financial literacy? Excellent question for Well, first of all, it's 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 a tiered answer. There's quite
1: a bit of things I think going on. First of all, in the point about um, it being. It, let me say it this way, and oftentimes in the black community the the issue is access, right? It's having access to the information, access to the knowledge, access to what is available that is that is a lot of what it is, and when you don't have um, a person of color or a person in position of power to be able to teach or educate or provide information or knowledge available to communities so that they can consume this knowledge, then what you're you're left with is what is out there. And a lot of times the products out there, right, aren't necessarily uh, um, communicated in a way that would uh, allow people of color to really know where they stand with all of this. So if, so for example, just as you mentioned credit, like we talked about that as an example earlier on, if you don't know what your rights are as a consumer, you tend to just accept the status quo. You tend to accept what has been told to you. So a great example would be, as I mentioned, auto insurance. If you know, you live in the city of Detroit. Right there. That is, I mean, just the mecca of increased premiums for a myriad of reasons. But something that I found out, interestingly enough, from someone that was an insurance expert, explained to me that they, you know, got obviously the person's um, Social Security number and they were able to access their credit report and they were able to access um, or get somehow get access to what their credit score was and was able to put together um, an insurance plan or a premium that was five and 10 times higher than what would be in the suburbs based on what their credit rating was. And I said, and and actually we have um, Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib is actually fighting this very thing right now, but it's, it's real. I mean, I, I literally, um experienced this myself, as well as talk with clients that experienced this, but heard from a licensed insurance agent who explained how and why um, people in the city of Detroit, which, of course, impacted communities of color and black people specifically, when they were using these credit ratings to you know, set a, a price, right? And it would be just astronomically higher than if a person's zip code were different. And I said, What does their credit score have to do with insuring their vehicle? Where's the correlation? What does that have to do with any of it? Especially if you know what's being reported on the actual credit report. So it was those questions and digging deeper and finding out why was that necessary. And so what we ended up doing was calling that insurance company to task and saying, why are you including, for example, a credit score or what's on a recredit report as part of setting um, the cost of, of the premium, insurance premium for this particular consumer in this particular area code or zip code, rather? What does that have to do with any of it? And so it, it's, it's an ongoing battle, but it is now being taken up in legislation, um, Yes, that is is
0: challenging this because it, it it is completely irrelevant,
1: and so it's it's things like
0: that. Yes, I was recently criticized. In fact, someone left a negative. Review on iTunes because I sent out a newsletter. I send out newsletters every other week giving you updates. And my last newsletter, I was wanting to be transparent about where I was donating in these times. And I mentioned, you know, the NAACP, I mentioned this great organization that is Communities Against Police Brutality, and I mentioned the National Bail Fund Network as well. And someone was very upset by that. Felt like I was getting too political, said that she had always appreciated the podcast until now, left me like a one-star review or something like that, said I should stay in my lane and not make personal finance political. I mean, what do you even say to that? Oh, gosh.
1: A lot. (laughs) A lot, because it is political. It impacts every facet of life. Here's here's what the other part of this. One reason I got into personal finance is because I used to think, Farnoosh, that the law had an impact on every aspect of life. And what I mean by that is usually someone wants to, you know, retain an attorney if they don't understand the law, if they have gotten in trouble and need someone to help them, right? As far as um, what the laws are, or if they want to avail themselves of the law, right? So there is a legal component to everything, down to, you know, what you buy from a grocery store, to, you know, how, how, what kind of home you purchase. I mean, there's a legal component to everything that we do. And I used to think that that particular subject matter was about the only thing that had some sort of relevance in. Every aspect of life. Money is such a thing and actually more so than law, because it impacts every component down to what you eat every day. Right. So to say something like it doesn't have money, doesn't have a political impact or or stay in your lane, quote unquote, is I mean, it's it's honestly it's. And I was going to say it's ignorant. I mean, when you really think about it, and I mean that in a sense of you don't understand the connection, because if that were true, then, you know, um, political campaigns would not profit from or have an advantage from people donating or having some sort of monetary contribution to how far they get in a campaign. And let me just say this, um, I remember and I'm certainly sure you remember and, and many of us do. That uh, certain Democratic candidates dropped out of races because they didn't have enough money to sustain in that race. And that was something that I remember posting on a a social media platform was this is why um, money is so important in having access to knowledge and access to certain levels of wealth. And information is important because if in the right hands, right, if everyone had access to money in this way and you know how you want to use it, then you have the ability to be able to fund um, campaigns and contributions and charities and political strategy and things that are, are of importance to you and your community. Right. You're able to have the, the means to be able to do that. So that's just one angle. You know that you can look at it, but usually someone that maybe has not been impacted on the negative side of things would carry that opinion. You know that it's not relevant or it shouldn't be talked about. But if you are a person of color or you live in a community of color, if you are a black person in particular, there are certain um, amounts or levels of of knowledge and access that you know a lot of times you've been left out of entirely. And it certainly translates to homeownership. It translates to, um, you know, your uh, political uh, power. It translates to your ability to um, open a business. It, it it translates to your ability to have access to certain capital and understanding um, just basic financial knowledge in and of itself. There's a lot that You know, that has an impact on, especially with black people, black communities, and other communities of color.
0: You were born and raised in Detroit, still living in Detroit, Stephanie. So, just curious to know more about how Detroit is doing. It is largely black, 80% black or African American. Since the Jim Crow era, Detroit uh, was a destination for a lot of black people as they were fleeing uh, slavery and racist oppression. Over the years, there's been racial tension, and now there is actually more white people moving to Detroit. So I'm just curious, um, what has been, if any, progress you've seen on the racial front in Detroit? And if there has been progress, can we apply some of that and learn from that as we, as a country, are trying to move forward and as states and, and as other communities are trying to learn how to become more inclusive and anti-racist.
1: Yeah. So it's it's a complex history and it's a complex present, <laughs> I like to say, because they're, you're absolutely right in saying that a lot of the people um, that migrated to Detroit in this area, you know, were escaping Jim Crow South. My grandfather was one of those people. Um, and certainly some of his siblings migrated to um, Detroit and Chicago and sort of you know, other Midwestern cities. But yes, um, that was a lot of people's story, especially within, you know, my peer group. A lot of us talk about, you know, the stories that our grandparents and great grandparents explained to us about what they had to do to escape, you know, racism and Jim Crow and looking for better opportunities. So Detroit is known as the Motor City, the the big three, as we call them, are all here. So this is the automotive companies, right? General Motors, Chrysler, and Ford. Um, and so those major plants and companies are all housed within the Detroit area. And back in in those 50s and 60s and back in that time, a lot of our, you know, our grandparents and uh, the older Black generations migrated here for those better economic opportunities, right? So it started out being obviously a a way to escape racism, but also to build economy and, you know, be able to have access to home ownership. Now, back then, if if you were able to purchase a home, it was in a designated part of the city. A lot of times it was um, what's known as the east side of Detroit. You had these huge homes, um, well-built homes that a lot of Black people were able to purchase during that time. And it set up these communities. Um, and And that was, you know, relevant to, again, sort of keeping a segregation happening where black people could live and have community, but it was in a certain area or certain part of the city. Right. So you fast forward to where we are now. And when Detroit went through bankruptcy um, several years back and and suffered along with many other cities, right, when the economic recession happened in 2008, then Detroit had it. You know, really interesting because not only did our property values and housing values plummet, right, then people begin to move out of the city. And so that caused a drop in property values. It caused disinvestment. It caused um, a lot of schools, schools to close, which had an impact to our education system. So there was a a ripple effect. And at some point, um, Detroit filed bankruptcy, I want to say around 2009 through 2011 in that area. Um, And then there was there were several issues that occurred right on a on many levels. And a lot of times, depending on what's reported, people have a certain view of Detroit. Um, It did make what they call a comeback in a sense of, you know, people started to invest in the city and begin to invest in certain neighborhoods. Um, There is um, a lot of investment in downtown Detroit, in Midtown, what we call Midtown Detroit near um, the Wayne State college, which is one of the larger colleges housed within the city of Detroit, a lot of investment happened in that regard. Um, Businesses started coming back. Property values have started increasing. um, Businesses opening, new businesses opening. Um, So several ways in which folks near and far within the city and, and as well as other states and even other countries have invested in Detroit. So that part of the story is really interesting and I think gathered the attention of a lot of people. But to that point, it's important to to note that some you know, Detroiters um, felt left out of the resurgence and the reinvestment that was happening in the city. Because in talking about the 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 challenges that the city faced in years past, there are a lot of loyal Detroiters and diehard Detroiters that stayed in the city and kept, you know, kept fighting and kept, you know, going um, to keep the city moving forward. You know, the Detroit community, I have to tell you, is there's a there's pockets that are extremely loyal. And I mean just they have a sincere love for their community and love for their city. And so those, those folks were highly invested. It was never a reinvestment for them, right? They were always here, whether they had a business, they lived here, they were from here, their families were here, they worshipped here, whatever it was, it meant something to them. So when the reinvestment occurred from those that might, you know, have moved back to the city or from other areas, you know, the the contention, if you will, would come from those that lived here and stayed here versus those that sort of came back or were newcomers. Right. And the thing is, you want to find a way to work together so that you are moving in the same direction, even if there are certain things you want, but you're moving in the same direction. The issue for some was that that reinvestment um, or the resurgence, as they called it, left a lot of Detroiters um, born and raised out of the equation or having access to uh, built getting businesses and, and being a part of that resurgence. And even greater than that, Farnoosh, is some of that reinvestment caused spikes in rent, for example, in downtown Detroit or um, the the prices going so high that it, it priced out folks that had already been here. So they could have lost their business that had been in place for 30 years, right? They could have lost their home living in downtown or those midtown areas that were being um, where the reinvestment was happening first. And they were priced out and could no longer afford to live there. So that's where some of that contention came from as well, because It was like, yes, we want this reinvestment. Yes, we we like what's happening, but no, we don't want to be kicked out when we when we've been here through it all. Right. So that was sort of the duality that was happening. And to some extent, it's still happening um, in the city. But I think, you know, as of late with the protests and just different things happening, I do think there is you're starting to see more of a community coming together of of everyone. Right. All all tight, all, everywhere coming together, even outside of the city and really, um, I think, reestablishing focus. It's 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 really interesting to see. I, I'm going to really pay attention and continue to, to observe and obviously participate, but be very aware of of how it's different now, um, a, a coming together of communities. It's really interesting to see. So certainly keeping my eye on that, too.
0: Well, we thank you so much for your contributions, Stephanie. And I have to say, when I first learned about your company, Social Money Finance, I was so thankful to learn that your target audience is Gen X, the often forgotten generation. We talk all about Gen Y. There's a lot of attention on boomers as they're you know, retiring and you know how are they doing? And I think there's a bit of an assumption that Gen Xers kind of have figured it out. But- as you know, they clearly have not, some of them, and they need a lot of our attention.
1: I absolutely feel that way. And that is what, you know, actually made me sort of branch out on my own. Because when I initially got into personal finance in 2015, so five years ago, I was working with a nonprofit and we were essentially providing co- coaching and counseling to you know, anyone, right, all over, all over the country. But when I did talk with Gen Xers in particular, you know, there was a common theme that sort of ran through that particular group. And, you know, interestingly, two years ago, when I started my own company, I realized that there really wasn't information, you know, specifically um, directed to Gen Xers. You know, they it wasn't the focus was on, as you said, right, like Gen Y and millennials and boomers. And, you know, it was sort of the skipping over of Gen Xers and not really addressing, you know, potentially unique challenges and things they were going through. And so that was something I really wanted to make sure that I did. I wanted to have a place where my peers felt you know, they could connect to and that there was a company that understood, you know, their particular challenges and what they might be facing that might be different than someone much younger um, and certainly different from someone that might be a bit older that, you know, even though we tend to be, this group tends to be smack dab in like their forties, right? Um, Maybe some a little younger, some a little bit older toward 50, but they're still, very much um, a need to understand and talk about finances in a way that is relevant to this community. And that was something I wanted to ensure that, you know, that was my intention when I created Social Money Finance was to put the focus on Gen Xers and really talk about the things that are important to us as a community.
0: Well, everybody, we can learn more about Stephanie at socialmoneyfinance.com. Don't worry, you don't have to be Detroit based. Many of your programs are virtual, online programs. Highly recommend you check out Social Money Finance. Thank you so much, Stephanie. Thank you so much, Pranush, for having me on. I really appreciate it. This has been awesome. Thanks so much to Stephanie Vaught for joining us. You can learn more about her company and her offerings at socialmoneyfinance.com. Black Wealth Matters continues next week with our guests Donovan Ramsey, who has an upcoming book on the crack epidemic and as a journalist, closely follows criminal justice and police reform. And Talat and Ty McNeely, founders of His and Her Money, managed to pay off their mortgage 25 years early. That's all next week. Stay tuned. Hope your weekend is so money.